As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, sand is in such high demand in construction markets around the world that people are stealing tons of it. And, unrelated, it turns out that white rhinos communicate via massive communal poop piles. But first, senior editor Catherine Whitborn and our freelance writer Alia Hoyt take us behind the scenes of medical research. Clinical trials make amazing new treatments possible and safe, but here in the United States, they struggle to find participants. Here's why and what you can do to help. Dave Bexfield of Albuquerque, New Mexico, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2006. Three years later, he applied for a clinical trial sponsored by the National Institutes of Health that involved a stem cell transplant. Bexfield says the trial saved his life. Within a few months of completion in 2010, he could walk again without a cane or a walker. Participation levels in clinical trials are often very low, even for patients with terminal diseases. Dr. Julie M. Vos, immediate past president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, told us that only about 3% of adult patients with cancer participate in clinical trials. This low rate limits patient access to new interventions that could treat or even cure their cancer. In fact, a 2013 analysis of cancer trials found that a whopping 40% of them were unable to enroll the minimum number of participants. Another survey showed only 35% of Americans said they were likely to enroll in a clinical trial. So why don't more people participate in trials, even if it might save their lives? Here are some reasons. Number one, they don't know what's available. People diagnosed with diseases often mistakenly assume that their doctor will suggest appropriate clinical trials if they're out there. Although some physicians are very dialed into ongoing research, many aren't or simply don't have time to sift through all the opportunities for their patients. So, in addition to asking your doctor directly about clinical studies, you can also check a number of online resources that can help you find them. The National Institute of Health's website lists several databases, including clinicaltrials.gov, which allows users to search by condition or location. 
breastcancertrials.org is another disease-specific option where you can be matched with an appropriate study. Search for Finding Clinical Trials to learn more. Number two, the trial locations are inconvenient. Geography is a major problem with clinical trials because they tend to be in specific locations that are often not convenient to patients. Vicki Carr is a breast cancer survivor and patient advocate for Susan G. Coleman, who lives outside Washington, D.C. For four years, she's taken a bus trip every four weeks for a trial that will hopefully prevent her cancer from returning and spreading. Another example, the multiple sclerosis study that Dave Bexfield participated in required 10 round-trip flights from Albuquerque to Houston, including initial treatment and follow-up trips. His costs eventually were covered by insurance company after a big fight, but not everyone has the luxury of taking so much time off work. But before you write off a possibly life-saving study, it's important to know the terms because some trials will pay for travel and hotel expenses. Number three, patients worry about getting the placebo. A lot of people are afraid of going through all that trouble of participating in a trial to only wind up in the group that gets the sugar pill instead of the drug. But nowadays, trials are designed to be more patient-friendly. For instance, there might be several treatment groups and a single placebo group, so the chances of receiving the placebo may only be 25 to 33%. Crossover designs also allow every participant to receive the drug at some point during the trial. Another incentive is the open-label extension trial. This is a special trial that allows participants who complete the main trial to have guaranteed access to the drug at the end of it. Also, in the case of cancer trials, people in either group will get at least the current standard of care for their condition. No one goes without treatment. Number four reason, patients also worry about safety. They hear the word clinical trial and figure that the drug being tested could really harm them. But by the time it gets to the stage of being tested on humans, the researchers have already tested this out on cells grown in a lab as well as on animals. These are called preclinical studies. Clinical trials are done only after preclinical studies suggest that the treatment is likely to be safe and will work in people. The research must also be approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The researchers and doctors we spoke with for this story emphasized the need to have a wider pool of study subjects. Clinical trials need both men and women of all races and ages to be sure that a treatment will work on everyone. And by the way, you don't have to be sick to participate in a clinical trial. Lots of them are looking for healthy volunteers. Next up, staff writer Joe McCormick, who's also the co-host of a podcast you might have heard of called Stuff to Blow Your Mind, presents a story from our freelancer Dave Ruse about the strange and very serious world of the Sand Mafia. As strange as it may sound, sand is one of the world's hottest commodities. The global construction boom has created an insatiable appetite for sand, the chief ingredient in making concrete. The problem is that sand isn't as abundant as it used to be, and when high demand and high value meet scarcity, you open the doors to smuggling. Meet the Sand Mafia. In India, illegal sand mining is the country's largest organized criminal activity. In inland villages, armed sand mafias steal land in order to strip its topsoil and extract the layers of valuable sand beneath. Along the coasts, pirate dredging vessels siphon sand from the seafloor in broad daylight with bribed officials turning a blind eye. The pilfered sand fetches a good price on the black market, where it is sold to construction companies building high-rises in megacities like Mumbai. 
According to journalist Vince Beiser, who wrote about sand theft for Wired and the New York Times, people who resist the mafia are beaten or killed, including police officers. Filmmaker Dennis Della Strock witnessed similar tactics in Morocco while shooting Sand Wars, a documentary about the global sand trade and its environmental impact. According to Della Strock, quote, The sand mafia in Morocco is the second most powerful criminal organization in the country. We saw people with shovels taking every last grain of sand from the beach. Where a few years ago you used to have a very thick and white beach, now you have this lunar landscape. It's devastating. Environmental officials estimate that half of Morocco's construction sector is built with stolen sand. The irony, says Delastroc, is that much of the stolen sand is used to build housing for foreign tourists who are flocking to Morocco precisely because of its beaches. If both legal and illegal sand mining persists at its current rate in places like Morocco, India, and across Asia, there may be few beaches left. The United Nations Environment Program reported in 2014 that, quote, sand and gravel represent the highest volume of raw material used on Earth after water. Their use greatly exceeds natural renewal rates. Delastroc claims that 80% of everything built on our planet is built out of concrete, and concrete uses a whole lot of sand. It takes 30,000 tons, or more than 27,000 metric tons of sand, to construct one kilometer of highway. It takes about 200 tons, or about 180 metric tons, to build the average concrete house, reports Coastal Care, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to beach conservation. According to a report from the International Monetary Fund, the Burj Khalifa Tower in Dubai, the world's tallest building, required more than 121,000 tons, or about 110,000 metric tons of concrete, and over 1.6 million square meters of glass, another industrial commodity that's a massive consumer of sand. Dubai represents another of the great tragic ironies of the global sand trade. This booming desert outpost surrounded by endless seas of sand dunes must import most of its construction sand from Australia. That's because desert sand is too smooth and fine. The rough, angular sand required to make concrete can only be found in or near water, or in ancient seabed deposits underground. Of course, Dubai isn't alone in its hunger for concrete. According to a 2014 UN report on global urbanization, 54% of the world's population now lives in urban areas, including 28 megacities, sprawling urban areas with more than 10 million people. The global sand trade generates $70 billion a year to mine, dredge, extract, and ship enough raw material to meet the explosive demand for urban housing. How long, though, until we run out of sand? It takes 20,000 years for the natural process of sand formation, says Delastroc. Ocean sand begins its journey high in the mountains where erosive forces slowly break rocks into smaller and smaller pieces that are eventually carried by streams and rivers into the sea. The ocean floor contains a surprisingly thin layer of sand. Most large deposits are found on beaches. The scarcity of natural sand makes beaches and shorelines the ripest targets for both legal and illegal sand mining. The environmental impact of large-scale sand excavation can be disastrous. More than two dozen small islands in Indonesia have disappeared due to runaway erosion caused by offshore dredging operations. 
In the United States, a Simex sand mine in California's Monterey Bay is blamed by environmentalists for rapid coastal erosion. John Gillis, a retired history professor from Rutgers University and author of The Human Shore, Sea Coasts in History, says the most immediate human victims of sand mining and sand theft are poor fishing communities in the third world. Quote, as sand gains value in scarcity and becomes a commodity, you see what happens. It disrupts not just the biological systems of these places, but also the social systems, driving people away from their very tenuous hold on the shore. But if sand mining is left unchecked, the damage to coastal ecosystems could start swallowing up beaches closer to home. One more thing. Documentary filmmaker Delastrock says that large-scale recycling of industrial materials, especially glass and concrete, is one way to curb the appetite for natural sand. In Denmark, a tax on extracting raw materials has created an incentive for companies to recycle. In 1985, only 12% of construction and demolition waste was recycled. By 2004, that number was 94%. this week, staff editor Christopher Hasiotis and our freelancer Jessalyn Shields have a piece for us about one of the fascinating ways that non-human animals, lacking a verbal language, communicate with one another. Via poop. Most of us agree, it's nice to have a special, separate area where everyone can relieve themselves. It's objectively great that, instead of finding piles of human feces all over the airport or grocery store, we extend to one another the courtesy of crapping in mutually agreed-upon spaces. So civilized. The very humanness of this act might be why, when a group of animals all use a shared public toilet, we're all, now isn't that interesting? But let's not fool ourselves. Plenty of animal species poop in latrines, or middens, and it's not just us fancy-pants primates, nor even just vertebrates. While the act of defecating in shared, communal dung heaps is common in all manner of mammals from moles to otters to elephants, some species of ants, for instance, make refuse chambers in their own nests. And lest we assume the public toilet is a modern invention, the oldest animal latrine ever discovered was created 240 million years ago by a herd of Dinodontosaurus, giant herbivorous reptiles that kind of resembled a modern rhino. This prehistoric pile of poo was gargantuan, covering an area of almost 10,000 square feet, or 900 square meters, with a poop density of around 94 turds per square meter. And speaking of the modern rhinoceros, the critically endangered white rhino can tell us a lot about what's probably going on when animals poop in huge communal piles. Why? Because white rhinos are seriously into smelling each other's crap. But let's back up a step. In the past, Researchers have come up with lots of different reasons why a population of animals would want to create a communal midden, rather than just go behind the nearest tree or wherever. Since we humans mostly confine our droppings to a specific area for sanitary reasons, some biologists have assumed that other animals might be doing the same. And sure, social insects like ants and spider mites probably do keep their biological waste and uneaten food separate from their communal living spaces, with the intention of keeping harmful bacteria at bay. But many other animals, like the white rhino we're talking about, will regularly just stroll up to a giant pile of poop and give it a good, thorough, investigatory snuffle. They're probably not all that worried about germs. So communal latrines have also been thought to mark borders of territories, or 
even communicate to predators that this herd is large enough that lunch isn't going to serve itself to them on golden platters. But for some species, scientists think the purpose of communal latrines is for intraspecies communication, period. Take Courtney Marnowek, for example. She's an ecologist and doctoral student at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and she's the lead author of a recent study investigating the role of dung in white rhino communication. White rhinos use communal defecation sites to communicate, she tells How Stuff Works, and this is the only reason they do this. They can identify age, sex, territorial state, extra state of the depositor, and even how long ago they were there. And although Marnowick didn't test for this in her recent study, she believes rhinos can recognize specific individuals through fecal scent. One interesting thing about white rhino midden-making behavior is that every rhino of every age in the area will all use the same dung heap. But the only one allowed to poop right in the very center of the pile is the resident dominant male. He's also the only one who kicks his dung around afterwards, spreading his smell around the midden, but also carrying the smell of his own poop with him everywhere he walks. According to Marnowek, lots of other animals, both herbivores and carnivores, use communal defecation sites for communication, sometimes only to mark territory and pick up signals from other animals, sometimes just for keeping track of estrus females, and often both. Particularly for herbivore species, she says, there's this hypothesis that communal defecation sites could potentially be for parasite avoidance. Basically, uh, don't crap where you eat. She highly doubts that this is the case, though, and thinks communication is the reason for all species. So, next time you're in a public bathroom, you might want to look around, or take a sniff, and see what the world's telling you. Oh, and one more thing completely unrelated to rhinos, but fascinating nonetheless. Since we're talking about animal bathroom habits here, let's talk about sloths. Though they don't use shared latrines, they do only poop about once a week. In fact, it's the only reason they climb out of the tree. And because it takes up to a month for a sloth to digest its food, they're always very constipated. That's why each week, defecating sloths undergo what biologists describe as an ordeal akin to childbirth. Ouch. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Further thanks to our audio producer, Dylan Fagan, and our editorial liaison, Allison Loudermilk. Subscribe to Now Now for more of the latest science news, and send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, tell me what you're reading right now. I'm reading Grant Morrison's comic, The Invisibles, for the first time, uh, and it's very not safe for work, but very excellent. You can send us an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And, of course, for lots more stories like these, head on over to our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.